Hello, Damon. Hey, Jeremy. How are you? I am doing well. Happy New Year. Happy How New Year. have you uh, <laughs> survived, managed, thrived, question mark, in our tumultuous first two, three weeks? You know, just trying to stay in the moment as much as possible. Yeah, I'd say either stay in it or, or get out of it. <laughs> oh, one of the two. Don't yeah. look back. That's no. that's for sure. It's a little bit like a Greek myth that way. So today I want to talk to you about endings and mm. what it means to bring something to a close. We obviously just brought an older year to a close, but just how to make sense in a larger sense of what happened or what you did if it's a project, how it changed you when something ends and figure out what that means for your story of who you are and what you do going forward. Basically how to nail the ending, whether that's a project, a relationship, or maybe even life itself. And this is particularly relevant for us in this moment because we are ending this show, at least for the time <laughs> being. We both got a whole bunch of other activities on our plates in 2021 and with sadness and nostalgia and pride and excitement and all sorts of other feelings we'll get into. We're calling this our final episode of stimulus and response for now. And because we're always looking for another bite of the apple and then caramel on top to help bring it off. And to keep us learning, growing, connecting to the very last second, we have a very special guest, Nirmala Nataraj. Hello, Nirmala. Hi. Hi, Nirmala. Hello. Thanks for having me on your show. How are you? I am as well as I can possibly be at this moment. So I'm a lot of different things, but um, fortunate to be here and lots of thoughts, lots of stories swimming <laughs> around in the atmosphere. <laughs> well, I thought we could introduce you and your work, get to know you, and then talk a bit about endings in general and ours right now in particular. Does that sound okay? That sounds great. Does that sound good to you, Damon? That's perfect. Great. So Nirmala, your three-part professional description is writer, editor, and personal myth maker. <laughs> we'll get yeah. into exactly what that means in a moment. But for now, I would just start by summarizing you as a master of learning and teaching from the unexpected. And part of that is working with diverse individuals and organizations from the Smithsonian to Black Lives Matter. Another part is authoring two stunningly beautiful space and science books, both with prefaces by Bill Nye. And another is organizing playback theater performances where audience members tell stories from their lives and see them reenacted on the spot. I want to get into all of that and more, and of course, endings. But first I thought, let's do some beginnings. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? What was your family and community and how did that lead you to this creative and maybe improvisation centered life? Yeah, that's a great question. I was laughing to myself as I heard the writer, editor, personal myth maker, which is a little bit outdated, the personal myth maker piece, because in some ways I think of mythology as being more of a collective process rather than anything someone actually has any personal control over. So 
I feel like that needs a bit of updating. But Wait, and now you're editing it. <laughs> and now I'm <laughs> editing it. Yeah, that was from many years ago. But I feel like I've come into a greater sense of my own specific mythology and recognizing that it's something that it encompasses my personal story and it also transcends it. So I, I always laugh when I hear the question, where are you from? Because being a brown immigrant woman in the United States, that question can have so many different connotations. And depending on who's asking it and where it's coming from, I know that I have a tendency to code switch. So <laughs> I always joke, it's like, do you want the do you want the short version of the story or do you want the longer version? And I think, of course, the longer version tends to be the one that is more accurate. And I think that speaks to the complexity of that question for me. So my family is from India and my mother immigrated to the United Kingdom with her family back in the 60s when she was probably about 13 years old. So formative adolescent years. And I say this because I think that my parents' migration story and really just the migration story of a lot of families from that particular generation of South Asian people moving to the West, essentially, moving to the UK and then the United States figures deeply into just the way that I, the way that I placed myself in, in my life, in my world. So I was born in London. And when I was about four months old, my family moved to the United States and I grew up in Los Angeles. So I think that there's a lot of complexity just even in the story of migration. And that was something that impacted me immensely. I mean, I think I'm just starting to recognize the impact and starting to really tell the stories of despite the fact that I've been in the United States since I was four months old, I think that I grew up with this awareness of, of being something of a liminal being. And I think there is this larger cultural story about what it means to be first-generation American. And that tends to be the archetypal story of towing the line between two wildly different cultures. Now, I will say <laughs> I... <laughs> I hate that story with a passion because I find it extremely simplistic. And the truth is, I think that I think it's really more a matter of inhabiting a lot of different cultural positionalities. And I think especially because being Indian American, there is another story that that is quite dominant. And that's the story of the model minority. Typically with that story of the model minority, there isn't necessarily a whole lot of political and social power, but there's economic power. There's the power of education. And those are the things that lead you into the um, American dream. Now, that was, not, that was not my story. My family actually was very poor compared to a lot of other Indian American families and just the Los Angeles community that we were a part of. So... So I would say just the underpinnings of my story are this sitting with the awareness of being very different from my peers being, I didn't actually grow up around a lot of other Indian American people. I didn't grow up around a lot of other first generation immigrants. I was in a pretty predominantly white American community. 
And that was, this is back in the eighties when the, the matter of representation or seeing other Brown people on television or having, having this broader spectrum of possibilities that, that wasn't really something that came about until I was much older. So, so my story was one of recognizing the, the movement towards assimilation that I think all immigrants deal with, whether they're white or black or brown. And that's not even to speak of the story of people who aren't necessarily immigrants in the United States, but who are marginalized for other reasons. So just in terms of looking at my own childhood, it was confusing. It was difficult. There was this process of trying to figure out where I fit and being really strongly aware that I didn't, I didn't fit anywhere. I didn't fit into the cultural expectations of my family. I didn't fit into the cultural expectations of who I should be in the context of what other people thought of me or where they placed me. And ever since I was young, I was really drawn to stories. My sister and I learned to read when we were really young. And I remember my mother taking us to the library. And I felt that it was this burgeoning place of imaginative freedom for me. It was a place where I learned that I could define myself by other stories, not the stories that had been projected onto me, not the small-minded prejudices that I grew up with. I felt like the world of myth and the world of story was the place where I began to dream bigger for myself because I just felt like none of the narratives that I had been given were satisfying to me. The narrative of becoming uh, successful or becoming a doctor or an engineer and living the American dream, I knew from a pretty tender age that that was that was a bullshit narrative. I didn't have the words for dominant culture or colonialism or any of those things. I didn't have those words when I was young. Those things would come much later. But I, I did know that for myself, the world of my imagination was really a haven away from some of the things that I was dealing with in my day-to-day -day life, this prevailing sense of, of being an outsider. And I don't mean being an outsider just in the sense of being different, being a different ethnicity, coming from a different cultural background. That was a part of it. But I had this strong archetypal sense of being an outsider within my own family. Just in the idiosyncrasies that I displayed, I was a very strange and playful and a, a trickster child. I, I made <laughs> up my own language when I was a kid. And I was very, I was very aware of the fact that essentially everybody around me was stuck in some role. I had this um, whimsical and theatrical perspective of life that, that was, was strange because I honestly don't recall where it came from. I just recall it being something that was always with me. And again, I found that this tends to be a common characteristic among people who find themselves code switching between different environments. And this is the language that they speak when they're with one particular community in their life. And here's the language they speak when they're in another. So people who tend to swim in this liminal space where they're neither here nor there, where they're neither one thing nor the other, I think have this very strong sense of the theatrical. And that was something that I believe was true for me when I was younger. 
And I think it's something that's still true for me now. That's so much rich topics there Mm -hmm. and identify with a lot of the pieces in my own way. I'm part of another model minority. I'm Jewish. My grandfather came to the United States from Poland when he was 10. And I feel like that immigration that's not parents and not myself, but close enough that certainly it was an important part of my father's life. And of course, my grandfather's life is something that I'm just really starting to assimilate now. And I subscribe to this newsletter and web magazine called Foreign Bodies, which is about immigrant and refugee mental health through personal stories in the United States. And I just identify with so many pieces and parts. And I don't know if that's because there's this commonality in our backgrounds or just all humans are code switching as you really described well. And in a way you have a slight advantage when you have a disadvantage where you can see it so manifestly (laughs) and process it a little bit more because you can't avoid it. Not to make an advantage out of a disadvantage, but I think that's often what we find. I don't know what, what stood out there for you, Damon. I mean, what a rich tapestry. There was so much imagery that was floating through my head. I was seeing these geometric shapes, and I had that sense of trying to cram the the square peg into the round hole type of imagery. And then the liberation, realizing that it's a three-dimensional world, and there isn't just this one space that needs to be forward momentum needs to be going into. It's interesting that you learned to read so early and that stories became such a rich part of your inner life. And I'm just, I'm curious, it's it's really difficult, I think, and rare on, on one hand to, just a quick background about myself. My parents divorced really young. We were also poor, but I went to the rich school <clears throat> and it was almost like I turned into a pumpkin every night didn't want to have birthday parties. Was, there was a lot of shame around that. And I, I found myself trying to fit myself through that square peg and to there was with a lot of pain attached to it. And your ability to just pull out and create a whole nother world and another language for yourself. And that meta-awareness of that you didn't want to play those roles how what were some of the ways that that manifested and applied in i mean obviously you shared some of them i'm just really curious about what experiences as a younger person and then leading into stories now as an adult and and then just a greater question of like what role do stories play for people i mean of course i i look at things through the lens of the brain and and how what were the concepts that we create in our brain are what we tep- typically toward create reality from. How is that liberation of seeing things through myth and being a little bit more expanded and, and open to the world, even though a lot of pain and a lot of people that may not understand you, what were some of the ways that you also applied that? Yeah, these are, these are such beautiful 
questions. And let me start with some of those experiences just in my younger years. And I, despite the fact that, like I said, I had the library was my haven. And again, that was because my, my family was poor. We, we didn't have toys. <laughs> I mean, I think that I, I recall the, the bathtub that I had when I was a newborn baby that was filled with a few toys, but almost everything else was books. And it was mostly books from the library. So this became the primary pastime for particularly for both my sister and me. My sister is 16 months older than I am. So we walked through a lot of the same experiences. So she was an ally and a confidant, although we had two very different, we were like the proverbial sisters and we were both set, we both set out on very different paths. And I should say I've, I've worked through just a lot of really complex issues with both of my parents and another aspect of our particular story as a family is it is connected to mental illness. Now, my father, about four years ago, my father began to show signs of dementia and his cognitive decline just was really rapid. But in the midst of this journey that my family was going through, which was very difficult, it's something that is still continuing to evolve. We did have we did have a psychiatrist who suggested that my father, in addition to having dementia, was also was displaying signs of schizophrenia that had likely been around for several decades. And of course, in a lot of South Asian families and a lot of families in general, and again, this was back in the 80s, mental illness had so much stigma around it. So that just wasn't, that wasn't something that we ever talked about when we were young. But it was very difficult because my father's reality was the the dominant, the prevailing one in our family. And so, and that was a very difficult reality as well. I, my dad was a rageaholic. And again, just looking back on it in retrospect, we're, we're talking about this is 30 years of hindsight. There's so much that, there's so much that we can see now. There's so much that we can understand now about what was actually happening for him and what was subsequently happening for my family. But the impact that that had on me was really, it was deeply profound. I mean, I was, I was a very, despite the fact that I had this fiery, playful, theatrical, humorous personality that was, there was so much, there was so much levity and there was so much creativity. I had just a really agile mind. I was very mercurial as a child and I loved talking to adults. By the same token, I was terrified of the world I, and I was painfully shy. And I still sometimes tell people and they have a hard time believing it, that it probably wasn't until I left home for college that I developed a sense of myself outside of that very rigid, it was, I mean, it was essentially a rigid patriarchal structure of my family. So so things were hard. Growing up was really difficult. And and yeah, I mean, I, I still struggled with a lot of the same things other kids struggle with because of the fact that we were poor and I had this dad who who was like a loose cannon and it was very, his, his moods were very volatile and we all had to tiptoe around them. The result of this, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is a good thing. It's, it's something that I've definitely been in therapy for, but the result wasn't so much that I developed this really strong sense of self that I then 
took into the world because here were these truths that I had discovered through through my teachers who were the authors that I read and librarians and this wisdom that that had been handed down to me through books, this sense of there is another world, there is a better world, there are other possibilities. Despite the fact that I had that, that wasn't necessarily something that I was very vocal about in my life. So in many ways, I learned to compartmentalize. I was a very good student, despite the fact that we were poor. Again, cleaving to that model minority story, there was never a doubt that I was gonna that I was gonna go to college. That was just a given. So there in a way there was there was a feeling that my life, my life, certain aspects of my life were predestined and that life would really only begin <laughs> when I hit adulthood. And in the meantime, here I was in this dormant state where I would only give as much as I could, but I would never really let anybody see all of me or all of what I was capable of. So from a young age, I really learned to be quite secretive about my inner world. And there was this very clear divide between um, my inner world, the world of my developing beliefs, the world of my imagination. I was an avid, and I still am, I'm an avid dreamer. And this, this is going to sound, <laughs> this is going to sound very sad. And I don't mean for it to be because it's, it's again, an extraordinary example of how sometimes the tragedies of our lives coalesce with the gifts we're given. Ever since I was young, I was an extremely light sleeper because anything could happen in my household. I could be waken up. I could be woken up by just a, a loud argument. And so from a young age, I, I had this um, really intense level of vigilance. And I think that that vigilance is connected to, it's connected to being a light sleeper, but also to being an extremely vivid dreamer and to being able to enter states of lucid dreaming. So here I had my active imagination, uh, this sense of being able to weave into the realm of dreams, which I found to be far more satisfying than hmm. my my regular day-to-day -day life where I couldn't do something like just get on my windowsill and fly off wherever I wanted to. I lived in my imagination. And I would imagine that if someone were to look back on my childhood or another child who had a similar life as mine, I think it would be really easy to pathologize that child and to say, okay, this child is showing signs of whatever the case might be. I don't, I don't know what the clinical expressions would be, but in many ways, it was the conditions of, of the world around me that really laid the groundwork for just this, this extremely intimate, carving out this space for this extremely intimate relationship with my, with my inner life. And very, very soon after learning to read, I was probably about three years old when I learned to read and it happened very quickly. And I remember just having all of these books around me. I think Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland might've been the first officially big book that I read. And I, I was probably about five or six at the time. So very shortly after that, I started to write. And that was just an additional revelation for me. It, was, it, it, it made me recognize that the act of writing, and I think this is true for the act of really any creative work, it's a magical act. It's something that has the power to give definition and meaning. It has the power to 
create reality as I discovered and recognizing that I could do that. I, I think I must have been about six or seven when I wrote my first poem. And it was a really, and it was something that again, because of the fact that I was, I was so secretive about all of these experiences I was having, I was generally only praised in, in light of my academic prowess or being a good little girl, but not for this thing that was so clearly the, the rawest and most authentic expression of who I was. I think I discovered that and I held that and it was such a source of joy and such a source of power. And I believe that's what, what kept me going. But honestly, it wasn't until it wasn't until later in my life when I was able to, I always think of leaving home as becoming the more relational stage of my life. Whereas the first 17 years of my life were really much more about weaving this cocoon of comfort around me in the, in the realm of stories, in the realm of writing. And it was very difficult for me to to develop what I felt were truly meaningful relationships with other people. Because again, as a survival mechanism, I felt like I had to hide the most important parts of me from other people. And so that's the story of my later life, my early adulthood, which was moving into relationships of trust, moving into the power, the importance, the transformative potential of community, which is really what my life is all about now. Because the sense of who I was as an individual was very lonely. It wasn't something that was ultimately satisfying because this internal world that I created was a response to the, the chaos of the external world. I'm very, very fortunate because another type of story that I know I've seen enacted over and over again is that we have a tendency to repeat intergenerational patterns. And I'm not saying that I haven't repeated intergenerational patterns, but I do feel that this movement, there's a wonderful Jungian analyst, Marion Woodman, who wrote, a, who wrote a book called Leaving My Father's Home, which is really all about the archetypal movement of a woman who leaves the father's home, literally, and also figuratively. What does it mean to, what does it mean to move out of patriarchy? What does it mean to carve out a space in one's life and one's world? and to allow oneself to be truly visible and to become part of a community and part of a family that is functional, which I think is what we're always looking for. And I feel my movement in my adult life, the story that I'm moving towards is one of family. And it's especially poignant for me in terms of just in the past few years, having learned the fact that my father has probably struggled with mental illness for it, probably most of his life, but definitely the vast majority of mine. It's it, knowing this story sheds light on the story that I used to tell myself about my childhood, and it changes it dramatically. And I think that this is part of the liberatory potential of stories. And when I think about myths, most people, when they talk about myths, they're thinking about the definition of a myth as a wildly held but false belief or idea, right? But when I think of mythology, I think of it as being, I think of a myth as being a sacred story. Hmm. And this is a story that helps us to explain and make meaning of our broader experience personally 
but also collectively. And it also acts as a moral and spiritual compass for us. And one of the things that I've learned is that a myth is constantly in a state of transmuting and becoming and turning into something else. And to me, if I held to the same story or the same beliefs that I did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I, I would say that that's, that's stagnation. That's the definition of stagnation for me. So it's the fact that every time I'm able to tell the story of my life, whatever context it's in, it, it's, it is always changing. It will always change because of my own revelations, which I'm 41 years old now. So I'm just bound to think very differently about my childhood the further away I get from it. But also just external situations that enable us to, to perceive the things that we've always perceived anew. So when I think of a myth, it is something that is timeless. And it also is something that enables us to perceive anew. It is alive. It is of this moment. That's just great grist for the ending mill. But there's also a bridge to be made first in your experiences it sounds, you know, so internal and then it's become so connective. Can you ground us with that? Can you share some examples of how you got out of your head and into community with other people or got into each other's heads together or however you want to describe that, how you went from it being this internal and protective and often wondrous, but an escape to to these larger connective projects? Yeah, that's a really important question. I'm not sure if I can completely answer it. In some ways, I feel like my life has been magical. It's really been a testament to some incredible teachers and human beings who've come in. And I think there's always this deeper question that I ask myself about the tension between, and I think this is a tension most people experience between guardedness, self-protection, self-containment, individuality. I mean, this is the process of individuation as Jung always talked about it. To a certain extent, there needs to be a cordoning off of the self from other. There needs to be a certain distinction. Oh, here's, here's who I am. Here's what I believe. Here's what I dream. And I think of that, again, as being part of the adolescence of one's life there's that sense of discovery. And it, which is not to say that that doesn't continue. We know we're constantly redefining ourselves and thinking about who we are in relationship to everything else out there. But I, I do feel that I've, I've always had a very strong sense of justice. And I think that is ultimately what led me into community. What are some of the examples of things in life where you bumped into other people and it turned out to be <laughs> a, a good thing? <laughs> yeah, just getting into the specifics, right? Well, definitely my theater life, I think, really took me on a journey that made me realize, wow, none of this is really all that much fun if I'm just in my own head making things up. I'm a playwright. I'm a theater artist. When I was in my 20s and I lived in San Francisco, I really got into acting and theater and it was a powerful experience for me that set the stage for my movement into playback theater and ensemble work because what it essentially, it, it felt like it was both play and therapy. So in a way, my theatrical work 
became therapy. It became the place where I was able to work out difficult emotions. It became the place where I learned to be vulnerable. There's a pretty popular theatrical game that is used in all kinds of different contexts now where it's the trust fall. You fall back and you have all of these people around you who catch you. And in many ways, theater and and any acting work, any performance work is about being able to step into that vulnerability. And you can't do it alone. It's not something that you can fake. And it taught me that the most transformative and creative work that we can hope to do is in community. I mean, theater is just, it is magic. <laughs> it's ritual. It, it is, it, for me, it is sometimes, I feel like it's the most immediate sense of God that I've experienced. It's been in theater. And theater is not an individual endeavor. I mean, even a person who's doing one person show has dozens of people supporting them. And so that was an experience that made me recognize, wow, I can go into these really deep states that I thought were only possible on my own with other people. And it's actually even more rewarding. It's actually even more revelatory. And the ripple effects are even more healing. So I would say that it was theater originally that made me think about the healing potential of collective creative work and the impact that can have on audiences and how connecting to powerful stories with other people, whether these are audience members or an ensemble that you're a part of, is in many ways a very potent act of resistance. It's a potent act of justice. The space books and the lucid dreaming are also, to me, pretty clear connections, although they might seem out of left field. I guess first I should ask you to define lucid dreaming, and then I'll just say it seems to me that stargazing is a collective <laughs> lucid dreaming. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let you say a few smarter things from there. No, well, I love that idea of stargazing as being a collective lucid dreaming. But, but first, to... <laughs> yeah, what is lucid dreaming? Tell so people yeah. who don't know what that is. Sure. It's pretty so extraordinary. Yeah. It, it is. It is. And so lucid dreaming is, and I'm sure that there's probably a better definition out there, but it is a dream in which the dreamer becomes conscious that they're dreaming. And this can happen in any number of ways. It usually happens in the midst of a dream as opposed to at the beginning, although maybe there are people who've had that experience too. It is a moment. It's a, what I guess the Japanese might call a Satori moment, a moment of bright revelation where it's like, wait a minute, things are not as they seem. And I have the power to actually influence what's happening here. And oftentimes when I lucid dream, I'll prove to myself that I'm lucid dreaming by naming elements of my waking life, just so I can ground into that and feel that sense of victory of having felt the illusion. And the notion is that once you're in a state of lucid dreaming, the idea is that you can then do really fun things like fly or shame your childhood bully, whatever the case might be. But I don't really feel that way anymore. I think the experience of lucidity in dreams is really powerful because if you were to consider the other elements of the dream, the other characters of the dream as having their own reality, it's a marvelous thing. It's like, even if you become lucid in a dream, these other beings in the dream are in some ways their own beings. They're separate from you still. So there's a magic in that, in the same sense of 
being a writer and writing something and then hearing other people have a conversation about the thing that you've written and then just standing back and realizing to yourself, okay, this thing that I've created, I have no control over it and I don't want to have control over it. And control isn't the purpose. It's, it's stepping back and allowing this beautiful thing that I'm a part of and maybe I even created or who the hell knows, maybe it came through me, maybe I channeled it. This thing has a life of its own. So that's what I think of when I think of lucid dreaming, but usually in the context of most people who want to achieve a state of lucid dreaming, it's to achieve a certain amount of control. And for me in my life right now, control is overrated. I'm much more interested in serendipity and surprises. Yeah, that's the best part about being asleep is I'm not in charge anymore. For yeah, exactly. you, uh, you know, Damon, is this something you think I, I can touch on maybe a couple moments in life that I can remember of possible lucid dreaming, but it's not my day to day. Is this something that you've ever experienced or often experienced? Or do you have any questions about how to access those dials if, if that's even possible? Well, so I'm 51 years old and, and probably in my mid twenties, I took on the project to see if I could create the conditions to dream in a lucid way. And I kept a dream journal and you know, I really prioritized waking up in the morning and beginning just capturing everything that was going on in my dream. And at the time, my task was to try and find myself in a mirror and I did, in fact, accomplish that one time where I looked at myself in the mirror and I knew that this was part of the objective for me to create that marker to be able to be aware that I was dreaming at the time. I found it to be just an incredibly rich, talk about story and, and mythology, just all the different layers and textures that that those that unfolded and as I would wake up in the morning and transcribe everything that happened and and I'm similar to you in that sense where I wasn't looking at it as through the lens of psychotherapy or trying to uncover deep dark secrets I was trying to be more playful with it and and I think it was also during that that cocoon era for myself as well. And I keep coming back to that. I love that. I'm going to weave that into stories that I tell when I speak with people moving forward around the idea that maybe you're just in this state when you're building your cocoon and you're in that caterpillar state. And at some point you'll crack open and, and fly away. And I love just in general, your the whole way that you've articulated your stories, they feel they do feel magical. And I think sometimes when we get entrenched in the storyline, we just reinforce in, through our own neural pathways and then just the trickle-down effect of what's going on neurochemically in our bodies. And we tend to go where we look. And if we are open and cracked open to seeing things in more of that Jungian way, it seems like there's that latitude and liberation to not become closed off. And as you say, that intergenerational, well, my dad was like that, so I'm probably going to be like that. And the more we say that, the more we see that story, lo and behold, the more we're going to move in that direction. So 
feels so liberating in that magical sense. And I also really connected to your idea around theater. I lived in San Francisco for 20 years as well and took a crack at some improv theater when I was there. And I just remember, and I still use this in my own practice today, that just that game of yes and. Yeah. I just love that ability to continue to move. And to me, one of the beautiful elements of that is that we all come to our relationships from our own stories. And when you play a game like that, you are not corroborating your case. You are floating around with another. And and in a sense, as you say, trusting and floating. And to be honest, I was never very good at it because I was too wrapped up in my own story. I do want to circle back to the stars, though, because I was, I'm was i really on the edge of my seat waiting to hear how you frame the the work. And I like what you were saying, Jeremy, about the, the lucid dreaming, having being able to draw a line to that. Tell us about the stars. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. And actually, just to go back to, I think, the piece of information you started with in the, in the beginning, I'm actually the author of three books. On the cosmos. The first is called Earth and Space. That was published 2015 and 2017. My book, The Planets, came out. And then in 2019, Chronicle Books, my publisher published Stargazing. Hmm. All of the photographs from these books come from NASA's archives. And so it was really a fun project for me because I poured over thousands upon thousands of images in their archives as I was doing the research for all of my books. And one of the things that we didn't talk about is that as much as my heart was in storytelling and mythology and all things art and writing, I thought I wanted to be an astrophysicist. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually, I did pursue, I had a brief stint. I did my undergrad at the University of California, Berkeley, And I worked in the lab of a Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist, he, George Smoot, and he and his team, they, they were awarded the Nobel Prize, I think in 2005. So that was well after I'd graduated. You just had to stick around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. But that was just a really fun experience. He was a wonderful mentor, but unfortunately in the process of working at his lab, I was basically fixing satellite dishes, that thing it was not very romantic. I was, I was the only woman there, but it was a really fun experience. And it made me realize that my love for astrophysics was much more about the science fiction hmm. <laughs> than it was about the reality of the work itself, which is in many ways, it's about zooming in and, and working on now George Smoot was someone who had spent a good majority of his professional life looking at something known as cosmic microwave background radiation, which is a radiation that exists that is known as isotropic. I hope I'm getting this all right, because it's been a long time since I've, I've been in my <laughs> undergrad <laughs> physics class. But isotropic radiation is basically radiation that is exactly the same anywhere you are in the universe. And it's, it's evidence of the Big Bang. And so this was something that Dr. Smoot had been studying single-mindedly for decades, actually. And he's, he's a great pioneer in our understanding of the Big Bang. But again, my, my interest in my interest in the stars, I think was really probably connected more to the artists and the astrologers who gazed out into the heavens and created all sorts of wonderful stories about what was out there. And it is really fascinating to to look at 
the various phenomena in our universe. And my books are really about framing these scientific ideas in such a way that when somebody is looking at a photograph, the way that the books are laid out, there's an extended caption below each photograph. And in my work, I sought to describe the image that a person is looking at because it's not always obvious, but also to see if I could draw out a story of what makes this so extraordinary. So there is also that element of my work, which is about bringing an understanding to these things in our universe that are sometimes so difficult to wrap our head around. I mean, it is just mind boggling to look at something that is billions of light years away and to even think that it exists. This feels like a story that somebody made up. And of course, there are people out there who believe that it is a story someone made up, but we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> but yeah, essentially, work of astronomers, the work of astrophysicists is about framing our understanding of the universe and how all of this came to be. So there is some extremely potent storytelling that I think comes into that. Carl Sagan is one of my personal heroes and obviously writes so poetically about the cosmos and about why it matters for us to be able to take stock of ourselves on this pale blue marble of a planet and floating around in endless banks of black space. It's important for us to hold that understanding because I think it connects to everything that we're facing as a species at this moment in time. And I think it makes this act of human meaning making and myth-making and storytelling and trying to find our moral and spiritual compass, it makes it all the more poignant to place that in this larger context of the universe, which is something that is a source of endless mystery as it should be. It, it, it wouldn't be satisfying if we knew absolutely everything there is to know. <laughs> hmm. I love the idea of ending at the Big Bang. It's a good <laughs> It's a good twist. It's like just just when I thought I was out, I'm back 13 billion years. I want to just turn us on that dime, though, and I want to talk about endings for a minute, just a little bit explicitly and with, with intention. And we'll can do that with whatever expertise or just personal lens we bring to it. I guess I'll start with you, Damon. What makes a good or healthy or happy ending in your experience or expertise? What's, what are some ending benchmarks for people listening? Well, I think, I think what's true of these times is that we're all, many people are entrenched in their story and they've dug in so deeply and that end of the spectrum feels very rigid to me and then there are others that potentially can't necessarily engage in what's occurring within their own lives, what's occurring within their own minds, what's occurring within our society, the planet in general. And there's a little bit of a chaotic sense or feeling to that. And I guess to me, what makes for a good ending to a story is when we have a sense of integration and that doesn't necessarily mean putting a period at the end of the sentence as much as it's just this sense of interwoven 
connection and where there's balance and there is honesty about what occurred in the story. And like any good story, there are highs and lows, but that upon reflection and with perspective, one can see it as a whole thing. And that idea of Carl Sagan seeing this little blue planet floating in space, in a sense, I just, I love that as the imagery around, and if we're gonna speak specifically about the ending of what we've created together, Jeremy, I love the idea of this feeling like a fully integrated chapter in this, in a larger thread that is continuing and framing it that way feels satisfying and it feels magical. And so I think that's how I'm going to leave our experience in this particular chapter. And it's when I work with clients, that's in a way how I like them to frame it. You never get there, but there's also this integration where you also don't always have to be constantly striving. There's this beauty and meld that happens and that's how I'm feeling and my reaction to where we are and how I see sticking the landing, if you will. I love that. Integration is your key word. When I was making my little list, I started with intention. And part of that is I have an intention to register and process and make this a significant or meaningful ending for me. And hopefully for for you and everyone else. And my list was, I want to check in with our intentions for creating this podcast and show in the beginning, Hmm. which was peace, presence, and connection as values to pursue, instill, practice, reflect on, and hopefully bring out of or bring to others, our listeners and our guests. I wanted to reflect on what we accomplished to not just skip to the next thing, but metabolize, incorporate, process that doing these 30 shows, getting to meet amazing people, getting to know each other better and getting to know so much about myself. My joke I've said to you off air and maybe on air is everyone should record their therapy sessions because <laughs> you have one time where you're just saying what you have to say and who cares if the therapist is even in the room. <laughs> and then if you hear it a second time, oh, you can hear what the therapist said. And if you hear it a third time, you can hear what you said. <laughs> <laughs> and if you hear it a fourth time, you can start to make some reflections and come to your own conclusions, which are ultimately the only ones you're really going to act on how you incorporate it all and have that distance. And so I feel so lucky to have had that opportunity in the public therapy parts of our show (laughs) and even the work of editing and listening to it. I've had to hear all these episodes two, three, four plus times. And that's, that's turned out to be a privilege for me. And Mm. I, I wish that for everyone. So sneak a tape recorder into your next therapy session. (laughs) And Yeah, figure out where it fits in our and our listeners' lives, past, present, and future. I might just bookmark that a bit. It's not up to me to determine. I think that's an example of something where an ending makes sense in retrospect. I just know 
throughout my days ever since we started doing this, but I know this will keep happening throughout my life. There's just reference points that are illuminated by things we've talked about. And so I'm just grateful to that. I went mm -hmm. to an MFA program in creative writing and I would always say about that, you go to school for two years to get taught about writing, but then you learn it writing for the next 10 years, <laughs> whatever you got taught. And I think that's true of a lot of therapy. You just have to live it or practice it. And I know there's going to be things we've talked about or whatever normal is going to say next that six years from now, I'm going to learn what she's going to teach me six seconds from now. Hmm. So I want to appreciate that too. And I hope listeners get that benefit down the line as well. And finally, come to an ending that feels generative, creative. That's an opening as much as a closing. And I guess I shouldn't have worried about that since we got all the way to the Big Bang. <laughs> and I had to be like, no, we're going back to my intentional explicit ending about endings too. But I could have just left us with the, the pale blue dot vanishing to nothingness. And maybe I will. I want to hand it off to you, Nirma. What comes to you when... We talk about nailing the ending. Wow. I mean, I love everything that you both just said, and I would probably have used similar words myself in terms of intention and integration. I think that we, we live in a time and a culture that is sadly devoid of meaningful rites of passage. Hmm. So I think that for most of us, for most of uh, human history, I, I would like to believe that people marked beginnings and endings. And sometimes it's difficult to know what's a beginning and what's an ending. Sometimes those things blur together. For myself, I will say endings can be abrupt and unexpected, and they can also have blurred boundaries. So it's hard to sum up what a good ending is, but I'll reflect on just a personal experience that I've been having so I am coming up upon the one year anniversary of sobriety close to a year ago. I, I can't even say that I made the decision to stop drinking. A day came and it was very clear to me that I was finished. And I would say that there's been something about this past year. I mean, this past year that has been so chaotic and transformative and full of uncertainty and full of ever narrowing echo chambers for so many groups of people. We live in extraordinary times when it comes to storytelling, but they're also very scary. And so I think that what happened for me after that particular ending, which was a very clear ending, and I know that lots of people struggle with relapses, but in this case, I did not. And I firmly believe that it was, I don't want to say it was an act of God. It felt like it was an act of grace. It was one of those endings that was decided for me. I didn't have to really do anything. Hmm. And I think that after, after an ending, it feels right to have a period of rest. It feels right to move into a state of fallowness where there isn't necessarily too much movement or too much urgency about figuring out what the next thing is to do or to be. And I would say that in many ways, it seems miraculous to me that my specific ending, deciding to quit drinking, occurred pretty shortly before the global <laughs> pandemic. And that was purely 
it was a synchronicity. It was not something that I had planned. And I had a lot of people joking with me and saying, well, what are you doing? This is the time to start drinking more. (laughs) But again, (laughs) it was not a decision that I really made. It felt like the decision had been made for me. And the movement in the wake of that was towards rest, a state of allowing myself to move into the void, which is for many people, it's a very uncomfortable place to be. But again, I think that this is, it's back to the cocoon. It's back to moving into the new formation. And I'm very conscious of the fact that I don't necessarily have control over that. I have the things that I want. I have my intentions and intention plays a very big role in beginnings. But in this process of a good ending, I think that having a nice, long, fallow period in which you really allow yourself to rest on your laurels, so to speak, and and to reflect and to not necessarily take immediate action is very important. Although we're in a time that feels so urgent when action feels necessary, if we don't want to collapse into despondency, but I think that rest is something that's extremely important and it tends to be underrated in our culture. But I do think that the rest itself is what allows for generative beginnings and beginnings that aren't necessarily repetitions of the cycles that came before, but that are, you start to look at everything as occurring in cycles, but it's more like a spiral. So depending on where you are in the spiral, it might look the same as it was before, but it's actually quite different because the learnings are new. And I think that this process of integration and even setting intentions requires that fallow period. I cannot think of a better way to close than with a call for rest and mm-hmm. renewal. Damon, what what would you add or how would you take us home? I just want to express some gratitude, Jeremy, for you going on this journey together, being part of this cycle. And Nirmala, thank you so much for your magic and your wisdom. I'm going to use your words from your site And I will push back if you think this is dated. (laughs) (laughs) I believe we have the power to plant seeds of stories that blossom into life-sustaining myths. And to me, this feels like one of those seeds was planted this hour. So I really am grateful that you were on our final show and grateful that you are a spark and a soul on this planet. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. I've enjoyed every moment. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Damon. Thank you, Nirmala. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'd say we'll see you next time, and maybe we will, but (laughs) if you're jonesing, just go back to episode one. We'll be right there. (laughs) We're going to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Rest up, renew, and we'll take it from there. Bye, everybody. Stimulus and Response is hosted by Damon Valentino and Jeremy N. Smith and produced by Matt Mullins at Black Rooster Productions. Please rate, review, and share the show. And please join us next time for another stimulating exploration of the best parts and best ways of being human and being alive.